0: Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. In mid-October, at the Barbican in central London, we hosted the 14th of our annual Battle of Ideas festivals. Bigger and with a more diverse range of topics than ever before, the festival hosted 450 speakers on over 100 panels, attracting an audience of about 3,500 people across the course of the weekend all of them keen to explore, understand and debate the important issues of our day, covering everything from biomedical dilemmas to the culture wars and the nature of the modern family to how we might navigate the new political disruption. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be releasing a number of the sessions on audio and video, so keep an eye on this podcast and also on the Battle of Ideas video channel. We'll kick off with a debate that reflects on the big issue of today, identity and the self. The session is Me, 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 Narcissism and the Politics of Identity and it's introduced and chaired by the writer and broadcaster Tiffany Jenkins.
1: Welcome um, to this last session, Me, 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 Narcissism and the New Politics of Identity. Um, it, my name's Tiffany Jenkins and I'm chairing this session and, and um, I'm really happy to be chairing this because I think its theme of identity has been confronted throughout the weekend, and I'm very glad that this panel now is going to solve everything that's been thrown up in the air. Um, I'll introduce them, they'll speak, and then we'll we'll get going. Immediately on my left is Dr. Beth Gilding. She's an academic at Goldsmiths, the University of London, and she's co-editor of Narrating the Passions, New Perspectives from Modern and Contemporary Literature. Speaking after Beth, we'll hear from... Jacob Reynolds, who's Partnerships Manager at the Academy of Ideas, Co-Convenor of Living Freedom, and the Organiser of Debating Matters. We'll then hear from Caroline McFarlane, who's Director of Common Vision. And then Dr. Graham Archer will round it all off. Dr. Graham Archer is on my far left. He's a writer, professor, professional statistician, and the winner of the 2011 Orwell Prize for Blogging. Beth.
2: I'm going to start, actually, with, um, with a quote uh, from Dostoevsky's 1864 novella, Notes from the Underground, which I think starts to get us closer to what we mean here about narcissism and identity politics and, and what I'm going to call the paradox of the selfie. Um, so Dostoevsky writes, we find it a burden being human beings, human beings with our own real flesh and blood. We are ashamed of it, consider it a disgrace, and are forever striving to become some generalized some kind of generalised human beings. So some kind of generalised human beings. Now, I think this is especially pertinent for the issue of the selfie. Um, when you type hashtag selfie into the search bar of Instagram, you get and this was yesterday, so it it will have changed probably by now, you get 333,192,512 other selfies. That's uh, 333 million plus other individual singular selves, all generalised under the one hashtag, selfie. Um, Now... In this case, the selfie has absolutely nothing really to do with the self, to do with what it is to be a real human being with flesh and blood. It's far more to do with how well can I make myself look like this generalised form of human being, this generalised, ordinary kind of beauty that is popular. Now, Josh Cohen in his book uh, a few years ago uh, The Private Life, which is a fantastic book, um, writes about this paradox of the public image. And his argument there, and he uses Britney Spears as as an example, is that um, the more public a person appears to be, in fact, the more their kind of singular, weird, unique, individual, flesh-and-blood self actually is concealed in this public image. So the more we think we get to know a celebrity via headlines the less, actually, we know about them at all. And, you know, in his argument, the less they know about themselves. Now, I want to break this down a little bit into what it is to fix the self in terms of the selfie and how this fixing, I think, does lead to a type of narcissism but not the type of narcissism that we, are, that we generally tend to understand when we talk about that term. Now, when we fix the self in a generalized image and we try to become this, this generalized human, what we're not doing is we're not actually getting any closer to understanding what it is to be an actual self. And now one of the, one of the other terrifying uh, numbers on, um, in Instagram is if you type in hashtag uh, anxiety you have over four million posts if you type in hashtag self-harm you have nearly half a million posts Uh, if you type in hashtag anorexia you have over a million posts and these are all conditions that people are conscribing into they're becoming that identity and they're then becoming fixed in that identity and that's what scares me about this is that what we're seeing now all too often is that the idea of identity as being something that we are constantly creating, something that we are constantly doing, something that we are constantly finding out about, is, is becoming fixed. We're no longer able to kind of change our identity, especially with the online uh, nature of identity now. It's, it's impossible to say, especially when it's published online, that I identify as this and then, And then, to change that, without that previous identity, still always being there, still always being something that you 're held accountable to, so the and I think this is where we see a lot of kind of breakdown in the idea that we can talk about the self as being um, uh, kind of constantly in motion, constantly asking questions, constantly moving forward. And instead, we're seeing very often, and one of my main interests is in the so-called mental health crisis, we're seeing labels becoming brick walls to people as opposed to hurdles that they can overcome very often. Now, something that came up yesterday in the first talk I went to on the student mental health crisis, which was about um, Catherine Eckerson's book uh, and Dennis Holly as the the dangerous rise of therapeutic education, was somebody said what we're missing quite often is a sense of humour. And I think that is so true in identity politics and in uh, Instagram and in the idea of the selfie. Now, I don't know how many of you know about um, Celeste Barber and uh, her posts on Instagram where she she kind of rips apart the idea of the selfie. And, uh, and she's very funny about it. And she's also very good at talking about it. And she, what she says is that everyone has taken themselves so seriously that we are no longer able to communicate with people who are different from us. And I'm going to leave it on that note. I've got lots more to say about it, but I'm aware of time. Thank you, Jacob.
3: So to sort of kick off my remarks on uh, narcissism, I want to return to the insight at the heart of Christopher Lash's seminal work, The Culture of Narcissism, and try and use that to get a better handle on how it's manifesting in the contemporary world. What Lash wanted to draw attention to was that narcissism oughtn't be thought of as egoism, as a sort of simple self-love. Rather, it's what happens is when we experience ourselves as fragile, as weak, atomized, and alone, without the usual supports or barriers that help us navigate the world. With the self, which is my sense of who I am, experienced as fragile, more and more of what we do is preoccupied with establishing ourselves as important and then as uniquely as important. So I wanna say that this picture sort of holds up today. I mean, of course, you can read lots in the pages in the newspapers about how our socioeconomic situation uh, is such that we're sort of made vulnerable Uh, to the world. And the the truth in that is obviously expressed in the the Marxist line about everything solid melting into thin air. So there is something about the socio-economic conditions that give rise to this context. But I want to say that there's something more to it as well. There's something in our culture, our ideas and our values um, that we can understand. I want to give three examples. The first is the oft-repeated phrase, don't question my identity. The second is the notion of gaslighting, and the third is I want to say something about contemporary relationships and casual intimacy. So on the first, the don't question my identity, you hear it sometimes as don't invalidate my identity, don't question my right to exist, don't deny my right to exist. Um, These phrases are the familiar refrain of identity politics. They're a demand for respect, um, a way of silencing criticism, and above all, the demand for recognition. I believe myself to be this, and you must not question it. The phrase is used as if it's a sort of attempt, uh, as if they're criticising sort of genocidal attempts to remove a section of the population. The reality is much more mundane and more instructive with regards to narcissism. What they really mean is don't question. Um, They equate a question, a debate with the removal of their personhood. To question something politically is to question them, their personhood. And it's easy to dismiss this as just narcissism. You've made this a political issue all about you and your identity. You've confused the criticism of your politics with your personality, you're just a narcissist. But Lash's point about fragility allows us to understand rather than just dismiss. There's, there is something about the experience of selfhood today that means people feel genuinely so fragile and uncertain that they can't distinguish those two kinds of criticism. The distinction between public political argument on the one hand and your personal moral value on the second is something that people can't understand doesn't feel to hold Um, so we see and in the politics of identity there genuinely is a narcissism because this public private distinction no longer feels to hold people's identities become fragile and the response is to feel everything is about them the second is a short thing about the notion of gaslighting. It's a strange term, I'm sure you're maybe familiar with it. It what basically means to make someone question whether their version of events, their reality is true so that you can exert power over them. It's a sort of marginal feature of certain abusive relationships has become the explanation de jour for everything from Trump to the struggles of trans people. But this ordinary human experience, having people question your experience of things is said to be like being in an abusive relationship. This is hugely profound because the most basic fact of our social world, that we're different, that we think, see, and understand things differently because we each occupy a different position in the world, we have a different point of view, is re-understood as a terrorizing imposition of other people on one's own individuality. The point is only the most fragile of selves could feel the questioning glance of the other as an attack on their whole reality. (laughs) The demand that they avoid challenging the ideas on which my political reality rests is a narcissistic demand to recognize my reality as the only important one, the complete in itself. A third example is about contemporary relationships and casual intimacy. So, on the surface of things, the most obviously narcissistic element of modern relationships is the sheer publicness of it all people live tweeting, Tinder dates, and broadcasting their heartaches. But there's something deeper I want to draw attention to the affected performance of a kind of casualness, an attempt to broadcast quite how unattached people are. People talk of not wanting to catch feelings, of something being just good sex, nothing more. And there are even dating advice articles telling people how to hack their body to make sure they don't fall in love with someone they have casual sex with. This is obviously narcissistic. It's a need to avoid the other, to remain in control of yourself, A self that's understood as delicately balanced and always in danger of falling away from you and into love with someone else yet the same purveyors of this view of the self are those who the very next day broadcasting their heartache this isn't a coincidence the inability to form authentic relationships with the others and an intensified feeling of hurt from the actions of others spring from the same place a fragility of the self What we see as the narcissism of the contemporary approach to dating is really a self-defense mechanism against being hurt. Mm. So the point from these three examples, these three narcissistic responses to the world when the self is conceived as fundamentally fragile, is I hope at least that it doesn't have to be this way. We can and ought to confront the world with a different spirit. We wouldn't deny that there are genuine challenges and uncertainties to the social world in which we find ourselves. But at some point, we have to refuse to be cowed by them. Otherwise, this fragility will make narcissists of us all.
4: Thank you. Caroline. Thanks. Um, Yikes, this is quite deep for 5.30 (laughs) on a Sunday, right? Gosh. um, Okay. My organisation is called um, Common Vision and we're a think tank um, sort of looking at public dialogue and the art of public dialogue, trying to encourage people to go beyond polarised debates and views of the world. So I guess that's the the take that I'm um, coming at this topic from. So if we do accept that the word narcissism does describe a phenomenon in politics and public debate, then I sort of was thinking, why is that and what's led to that? I might be repeating a couple of things. That's already been said. So so cause number one, I guess, is this sense of personal agency and the fact that people in this world of speedy comms and disintermediated platforms, we all become content creators and influencers, certainly in our own little bubbles. And we're able to, because of those, uh, I suppose, forms of technology and infrastructure we're able to link with people who share those similar experiences and identities and we're able to try and influence them. So that can be a good thing and it could be a bad thing. I would just point out that I guess I think narcissism is when you're being Obsessed with yourself and your own reflection. I mean, literally the story about Narcissus is your own reflection. When you post a selfie, you are trying to share or influence or gain approval from others. And I think that's quite an interesting way to look at it. But in, in the sense of... Having that agency, it can be good and bad. It can be damaging in conventional politics where the focus is on the personality and the personal brand of leaders um, and, uh, you know, their own sort of look or persona rather than their ideas and the substance of their ideas. But it can be good in grassroots movements and... That could be... I suppose I'm not a fan of identity politics and how it plays out in public debate either. But as a political tool, it, it it does unite many who share an identity or unite people who share a belief in different individual identities. So it's a way of pooling people's agency and their power and their collective voice. So... You can have identity politics, but you can also have collective action based on identity politics, obviously. Um, We can't all save the planet if just one person kind of recycles their plastic bottle or whatever, right? But there's also this idea that that sort of focus on personal identity encourages or at least leads to ignorance of the other and erodes consensus and tolerance and um, sort of a way of sort of negotiation and... Um Coming to some sort of agreement about things, but also I think as as, uh, as as sort of Jacob mentioned a little bit, as a product of that everyone having so much agency and everyone having so much individual kind of power potentially, if the opportunities are endless, then do you end up feeling disempowered anyway? And lonely and isolated and fragile, so I guess that leads me to my second point, which is on the kind of lots of people feeling like there 's lots of opportunities for themselves as individuals, but then needing guidance to find out what to do with that and where to place that so the other thing in the blurb of the of, of the discussion was that idea of um self-awareness and um narcissism being people that are more focused on themselves and their personal i suppose um mindsets and maybe someone a bit cleverer than me can talk about the sociological causes of that maybe the kind of fusion of eastern and western philosophy and that sort of thing but i guess the decline of conventional social structures, the erosion of the congregation of the church or the working men's club or whatever it is, you kind of end up with a population that is perhaps less likely to find their communities immediately and maybe needing to understand the meaning of life in different ways. So I think that's where you get to the mindfulness, the well-being, the self-care stuff. But again, that could lead people to focus on themselves and their own sort of... Um, individualism in a bad way it could also be an opportunity to use that thoughtfulness and to use that enlightenment for positive ways so you can think about empathy and you can think about how mindfulness could become kindfulness and self-improvement could shape social improvement and awareness of the ways in which you can enrich your own life is also a journey or transition to the awareness of how you can shape your own... or your collective lives together... and build kind of cooperation and consensus on that basis. So what I'm trying to say is I don't think it's the focus on the self or self-awareness that is the problem. I think it's the way that we currently communicate those things. And so I agree with Beth on what you said on communication. I think what we've lost is that kind of skill set of public dialogue and the ability to use our own individual inward looking thoughts and feelings and concerns and priorities and shape a dialogue and have that kind of diplomatic process with others who don't reflect our own image or our own perspective so we all have personal agency but are on our own our individual actions don't do that much we're all relearning the thoughts of the tools rather of like thoughtfulness and self-awareness but perhaps the next step is for us to apply that to collective dialogue. Thank you.
1: That's
4: very
5: useful. Graham? Uh, one of the um, advantages of a Scottish state schooling is that even though I've ended up that unpronounceable uh, thing, a statistician, That's Tiffany, so I was exposed I to, I was as as well. to a few of the classics along the way. So here's a line from Ovid's Metamorphosis. One day Narcissus was walking in the woods... When Echo, a mountain nymph, saw him, fell deeply in love and followed him. Narcissus sensed he was being followed and shouted, Who's there? Echo repeated, Who's there? Narcissus in the echo chamber. Uh, What an apt metaphor for social media and more. You know how it ends. Echo dies alone. Narcissus dies alone. One imagines Narcissus as still as the water which bore his reflected image, just trembling in pre-orgasmic rage and desire, that his rage and desire led to nothingness didn't deflect his neurotic, self-directed dissolution. His desire for unattainable purity was sucker enough, as I say, an apt metaphor. When I spoke here last time, I confessed I was scared. Scared to say out loud what I think about LGBTQ politics, that I'm a gay man and not a collection of initials. No one is a collection of initials, and that transgender political campaigns have little to do with male or female homosexuality, which is a celebration of one's gender rather than a rejection of the very concept. That I was scared to say that Because the ferocity of the lobby groups behind those initials against transgressors can be vicious and sustained and quite possibly career limiting. So I'll take refuge in some poetry. Here's a bit of Seamus Heaney. Um, I sickened, turned and ran. The great slime kings were gathered there for vengeance and I knew that if I dipped my hand the spawn would clutch it. In a week when we learned that a man had been placed in a women's prison, a predictable and predicted outcome of the gender politics that those lobby groups so loudly champion and the Wellcome Foundation, for God's sake, launched an exhibition too frightened to use the word women at all, inventing some unpronounceable, uninterpretable word, merely to avoid the lobby group's censure, my fear hasn't gone away, the great slime kings are on the march. In 1996, I wrote in this journal, a toxicology journal, most of us believe the universe exists and we can learn something about its mechanisms by measuring observable phenomena. Middle-aged Graham laughs at that now. Not because I no longer believe in the universe or the importance of using language as precisely as possible to describe it in order to produce valid conclusions about the laws that govern existence. I laugh because I no longer believe that most of us think any such thing. Most of us, most of those who write for grievance studies journals anyway or who appear in BBC videos to claim quantum theory is proof that one's gender is whatever one claims it to be, seem to believe that the universe exists only as an extension of our own desires, and its reality is nothing more than anything we care to assert at any given moment in time. I am now a woman. Which of you will dare to contradict me? I'm a man again now, in case my husband is watching. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not an unthinking schoolboy in hoc to some myth about science's supposed objective nature. I'm a Bayesian. Belief validation of any theory is a function not only of data, but also of my, by definition, subjective view of the world. Which theory do we choose to test? How do we choose to test it? But evidence, enough of it, must eventually trump belief. That's the beauty of Bayes' theorem, which, because it's a mathematical proof, is true, whatever postmodernists assert. Enough evidence, as per Bayes' theorem, must cause differing opinions to converge. It's Plato's cave meets the probability calculus. That's why grievance studies, I, I know Dr Pluckrose is, is in this, so can I just say both simultaneously, I'm honoured to be in the same room as you, but I'm now terrified. That's why grievance studies isn't science, isn't even rational, and why the publication of gendered reviews of glaciology and geography papers is, to use a word de jour, problematic. No amount of evidence will ever change the opinion of an identity politics advocate in bulbous-throated shriek whose desire isn't for rational statements about real things but is an urge to clutch and destroy anyone who dips their mind into the quagmire spawn of their ideological swamp. Remember those students screaming at the US academic over the Halloween costumes, or the glee with which the woman, adult, female billboard outside this year's Labour conference was removed, or the onanistic, narcissus-again joy with which activists campaigned for a comedian to receive a formal police warning recently. And you remember, of course, Mr. Socrates, the philosophy student, forced from his philosophy magazine for the temerity of tweeting, women don't have penises. Socrates forced into hemlock consumption to satiate the Slime King's appetite, but it is not satiated, it is unsatiable. The activists who live in the vengeance swamp have elevated their sense of self into the whole of their ideology. It's a form of pathological subjectivism, and anyone who was bullied at school can see what those pathologically subjective students were doing when they screamed at that lecturer. They were bullies, that's why they frighten us, because it works. It's tempting to say, Seamus again, that to pry into roots, to finger slime, to stare big-eyed narcissists into some spring is beneath all adult dignity. Tempting, but a temptation we have to resist. So thank you, James Lindsay. Thank you, Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogostian, offers of those grievance study papers. You are my heroes, because when the International Journal of Evidence-Based Healthcare, No Grievance Studies Rag, can publish a paper that argues that evidence-based medicine is a good example of micro-fascism then we have to pry into the roots. We have to finger the slime of the narcissistic grievance studies. Its pseudo-intellectual spawn must be held up to the sun and, one hopes, left to evaporate under the sun's cleansing rays. Science is too beautiful and too important to ignore the threat posed by these narcissists any longer. Science is Rome and they are Carthage. Carthago, delenda Est.
1: Can we thank our panel? Okay, there's quite a lot to unpick here, and I do want to come out to you, but before I do, I just wondered if I could get a couple of responses um, to each other. Uh, Beth, I wonder if we could come to you first. Mm-hmm. I wonder if my thinking in terms of what Graham just said is that it's, it highlights the example it highlights the problem that you were talking about, which is that it kind of it fixes and almost yeah. imprisons and polices identity
2: yeah uh, i think I think this uh, i mean Graham just did it so much better than I did or could do. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, I think, I think the idea of identity politics is that it, you are. Um, it, it denies the fact that the human is not a fixed entity and is human being is a process. You are you are always being, if you like, um, and. Uh, and th- but then, this—I think—I think this this kind of rhetoric actually there's a danger to saying something like that because what you then do, I think, is you start to kind of you loosen up certain terminology and certain truths that are actual that are that are actual. You know, we start to deny truth um, because the human is fluid, because the human is 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 a constant process, um, and I think. Um, in terms of where we're at now, and I think particularly with the younger generation, and this doesn't go for every young person. In fact, we were saying this just before, pretty much every young person I've heard speak in the past two days has done so brilliantly and articulately and has asked some fantastic questions, and that's been so good to see. But I think there is a there is a problem now with the younger generation of this idea that the public self is... Um, is all that there can be out there because their lives are on social media? One person did say, "Yesterday, one young person, My, everything I do is on social media now. that's who I am." And, and I did then sit back and just think, but if that's already who you are, then I, I don't know how I'm, I don't know how we can pull you back from that to see that actually who you are is, is, is it's, it's up here, it's in here. And it's also, crucially with everyone that you're that you were speaking to. Um, so that's my feelings on it.
1: Jake.
5: Yeah.
2: Well, my, my, no. I suppose you mentioned
1: very briefly um, the public-private divide and the mm-hmm. way it's, it's dissolved. And I wonder if there's some, if that kind of meets with Beth's problem um, a little. And so, so the dissolution of the public-private means that there isn't a difference between your private and public self. Yeah, so you're putting your private into the public the whole time, and then that politicizes it. Does Uh, that make sense?
3: Yeah, very much, but I I think part of what's at play here is that um, the people that are experiencing the demand for a certain kind, the the human need for a certain kind of recognition to be sort of valid, and it's it's not the recognition that people talk about in the sort of, like, the politics of recognition. It's the recognition that we get through our most private and intimate relationships. The recognition that you find in someone who wants, who will validate you as who you are and who you completely are. They like love everything about you. It's the kind of thing that we only find in loving romantic relationships or in really good friendships or in the, what you get from your family. That sort of unconditional respect and love. And what's with the with the breakdown of the of, the, of this ability to distinguish between the public and private? It that demand for recognition has sort of been unshackled as it were from the private sphere. And people now seek that kind of unconditional recognition in the public sphere as well. And so people want those things, a sort of unquestioning, uh, an, an unquestioning recognition of who you are. They try and get that in the in the, in, the, in the public sphere out of politics and that's why that demand for recognition takes on such a sort of terroristic or totalitarian character because it's unshackled from any of its proper place.
1: It does It does relate to what you were saying there about the creation of a public commons, I think. Uh, the sort of the division between public and private and, and recreating that requires a kind of public space where we meet as non-whatever-we-may-be. You know, where we're not always self-declaring everything about us but we're meeting as rational adults like I suppose in a bit like this maybe and so h- how would you see that developing?
4: Yeah I try to look at the opportunities not the challenges or at least how to change the, turn the challenges into opportunities so I um, there's, there's definitely something about this kind of like heightened individualism and what it means for politics, but it could also be what it could mean for politics, right? So you, could, you can take that narrative of the individual and you can shape it to become more about kind of so, social you know, um, social cohesion and, and collective goals. And I don't think that the problem is necessarily everyone being focused on their own kind of individualist politics i think it might be more about the the narrative that they want to create um together i I was just uh, i I was just trying to in my head think about how this all plays out as well Mm -hmm. because we can sit here and we can kind of talk about how social media has has you know ruined everything for ages but social media is just another form of communication and even though we didn't do it so quickly or so frequently before we still kind of sent I, i don't know um uh, passionate letters to people in the 18th century or whatever, which were declarations of kind of um, uh, uh, sort of self um, validation and all that sort of thing. So I, I think I think there's something to be said about what what do we do with it? Or how do we use it? And actually, um, it it's a shame if everyone sits there and they go, oh, and I'm not saying that anyone here has done this, but oh, that we've got this kind of cult of identity politics and what do we do about it but then they don't recognize the individual agency in themselves to be the first person to just have a better dialogue with people who they don't agree with and maybe help build up sort of the environment of public friendship in making that small personal action. Mm
6: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Graham your comments and then can I see some people who want to speak just get a sense of it.
5: Um, I'll go very quick so because i've got less to say than the audience i'm sure but i I want to pay tribute to beth i thought that was an absolutely brilliant spot that narcissism implies this fixed eternal state of not being um and i I wonder if that's linked to this sense i've had the last few years which i hate that everything not me is slipping further and further away from me we had we had the great lionel shriver speaking earlier i love that woman's novels and um she's famously been accused of this cultural appropriation. What's that, always, uh, except a way of saying, if you are not me, then you cannot know me. Uh, is that not a hideous uh, definition of hopelessness? And I think, I can't work it out in real time, uh, Beth, but there's some link there between that, that brilliant insight you had about narcissism implying no change ever in one's identity that becomes a, a, fixed, a fixed box.
1: Fab, comments? Okay, have we got one mic or two? We have two. Go there and come to this person in yellow. Okay. We'll take a couple and come up. Yeah.
7: Uh, thank you. I'd like to um, come up with a challenge. I would like us to expand in a way our understanding of this concept of narcissism uh, because it just seems that it's so bad, but I also think it can be good. And in my thinking, I'm somehow inspired by Rousseau's two opposing concepts of Amour propre, which is self-love, yeah? like when the, the kind of love that depends on the opinions of others, which stands in opposition with amour de soi, which is love of self, which actually doesn't involve seeing myself as others see me and seeking that validation, but actually is rooted in the fact that I, I have of love of self to be able to protect my individual well being. So from that perspective I would argue that narcissism mm-hmm. can also be in a way good sometimes good as long as it allows me and enables me to protect my well being.
1: Mm-hmm.
8: So right. um, sorry if I'm a bit up. sorry if I'm a bit vague with this, but um, I just wanted to ask do um does the panel think that is The moment you use social media, that's when you're instantly becoming narcissistic. And because I don't, I don't think. Obviously, it's not a, You're not a bad person if you want to want to be liked. So, what point? At what point? Yeah. At what point of using social media and what extent um, does it actually become narcissistic? Does the panel think? It's a
1: useful
4: question.
9: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was um, your point about um, identity politics lacking a sense of humour it really reminded me of all this kind of so-called snowflake culture, like the oversensitivity of the younger generation, and whether that maybe stems from a narcissism and overprotection of what young people call their identity and their heritage. And also going back to the point that was made before, and also his point, maybe some phenomena has risen from the rise of social media, like self-love and body positivity, could you say that that links into narcissism, and as well, is that not a good thing?
1: The lady in blue, where's the other mic?
6: Um, this is uh, so. I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm always very interested in the kind of um, explosion of mental health, particularly in children, and, and why children come to me and say, "I'm mentally ill," and I, and I sit there and I think, "Gosh, it's, it's horrible being mentally ill. You're, you know, you're depressed. Your life is, you know, you can't." do what you want you can't engage with what you want this is not a positive thing and I just why this kind of why is this being played out through a kind of prism of victimhood of something that is actually I would never want to impose these things on other people I wouldn't want my best friends to be mentally ill I wouldn't want my family to be mentally ill so why are the younger generations so keen to attach that label to themselves
1: Mm -hmm. okay There is somebody here who's had their hand up. There's a man with a mic. Uh, Lady Man.
10: I think it might be useful to just be specific about which self we're talking about, what's historically what self, Um, because I think um, uh, there's a a guy called Philip Reef who wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, which influenced Christopher Lash, and he made the point that... um, uh, uh, I don't know the dates exactly, but but as religious faith declined, which was kind of a crucible for common purpose outside of the self, as that declined, um, uh, something else took its place, which he is what he calls the therapeutic, which is when you make the self the highest ideal. Um, and so if you make the self the highest ideal, um, then um, it actually has the perverse... Um, Effect of making the self more fragile because the self is is a is above everything else, so so I think that's important because um, I I I I think it's less uh, I, I think that social media um, and uh, the the selfie I think that's more of a, a kind of a, a side effect of the kind of conception of self that we have today and it's kind of ironic because it's like if if you have a weak um, if you have a weak concept of self, um, you're constantly needing to kind of gain reassurance that you exist. So it's not even like you're really fixing the self. It's like you're constantly having to um, having to uh, be recognized to exist. So it's almost like I liked the the um, the the reference to um, to narcissist and, and echo. But I think that what that it doesn't quite work because today the narcissist is going echo, echo, look at me, echo. Um, so it's 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 more sort of um, uh, uh, at the risk of saying therapeutic, codependent. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: okay, there's a man with the mic. The person think, with the mic, yeah.
3: You I there. think it links to the point that's just been made. Um, but someone on the panel said, you know, what are the consequences for politics? <laughs> And what I'd like to suggest is that, you know, whatever the consequences of politics, this is a consequence of politics. Because Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals with individual wants and individual needs. And that was an ideological, an evil, I think, ideological statement, which has um, heavily influenced our society. And, um, you know, this is what, this is what it has led to.
1: Pass it to the person right behind you. Who's got the mic over here? You.
11: Hi. Um, I just wanted to say to Graham, first of all, as a member of the homosexual community, it's great that someone like you is able to say what you said in the beginning because there's not many people who are brave enough to do it because you will be shot down immediately for even questioning the kinds of trendy gender questions that exist right now. And even if you do it in an empathic way, it just seems very suffocating in some ways. So that's the first thing. I was wondering what the panel thought about how vulnerability fits into this whole discussion. And um, it links back to what Brene Brown uh, speaks about very often. She has a quite famous TED talk about how people struggle to be seen truly and find it difficult to um, open up in ways to become vulnerable. but you could look at it from a negative aspect where it's also a sign of weakness. So I was just wondering broadly what, what the panel thought about that.
1: Okay, there's a lot of points for the floor. I just want to take one before I have a very quick response from anybody on the panel. If they have something urgent, then I'll go back out after uh, you.
11: Yeah, thank you. I'm um, picking up on something Caroline said about kind of how there's a communal element to uh, mediating a lot of these kind of more philosophical and very personal problems. Um, To ask kind of in a practical sense, as well as us having this conversation um, on a more theoretical level, there's also an incredibly practical element to it in the sense that, the government and a whole range of actors that that brings are increasingly focusing on taking on board the mental well-being of everyone, not just vulnerable people and if we can start to think through what some of the implications, dangers, opportunities of that might be because I think it's kind of an increasingly um, you know, the the push from um, society to government to start getting interested and engaged in these things could confuse things as much as they might help people trying to resolve these issues for themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. Any comments from the Jacob?
11: Yeah, I mean, I'm picking up a little bit on that, but there's loads of great stuff
3: that I just won't have time to reference. But uh, I I guess one one of the essential things I want to get across is that in the same way that, like, government interventions can't restore us our sense of selfhood, Nor can we find it, like, directly within ourselves, introspecting. And so I, like, slightly disagree uh, with Caroline on the idea that you can sort of turn sort of self-enrichment into social enrichment because it suggests that, like, you go first inside yourself and find it and then you sort of bring it outside. Whereas I I think it's sort of quite different. But equally well, in slight distinction to what Graham was saying, I don't think we can also just trust in the sort of basic facticity of the world of, like, all of the objective facts out there to give us a sort of true sense of what it is. It's something that we have to go out communally together and construct and there won't be any sort of we can't there is no predetermined destination to it But it's something that happens in the process of us going out having arguments forming relationships building things making something that's bigger than just ourselves And it's not something that's just can be found out there. It's not something just be given us and it's not something we can just find inside either Uh,
2: Yes once again leaping off my seat um uh again lows to talk about and actually i want to go back to this point about um mindfulness into kindfulness and and something that was just said there by jacob i think i think there is now and it also relates to graham's point i think there is now uh, because of this kind of self-spaces arena that we've entered into with identity politics and with with the kind of hashtag um, mentality. We are actually now scared of saying things that we're thinking. I think we are now scared to say things that are on our mind, or to ask questions, or to to push things further. I think, I th- and I think that is actually massively detrimental. I think, it's, it's, as opposed to forming communities, it's breaking communities. People are moving further and further apart from one another, as opposed to coming together and. Discussing what they disagree with, arguing—we we, we, we do not learn how to argue anymore. I mean, I'm one of five siblings. I'm pretty good at arguing, <laughs> to be honest with you. But um, you you know it it. I, and I think there's there's this fear now. There's this there's constantly this fear that we're going to be accused, we're going to be branded as being something that we're not. And I think this is this is part of the danger of identity politics that. You you can just as quickly as you can brand yourself with your tagline on Twitter, you can be branded, and that can have huge consequences on every aspect of your life. Um, now, uh, I want to go back to this point about um, mental health and mental ill health, and how actually mental ill health is not nice to suffer from, and how it's 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 something that we need to speak more about in terms of it needing to be recovered from, as opposed to it becoming a badge that one wears. And all too often, I see students who come and speak to me and say, I can't do my work because I am anxious or because I have anxiety or it, different permutations of the same scenario. And my response to them, and I, I said this earlier on my panel, I'll say it again, I care a lot about my students. My response to them is your anxiety will not get better if you do not do your work. That is not going away by not doing your work. You are not moving forward. You have got to move forward. That is how you will get better. And generally speaking, it's well received. But there are there has been the odd student who's come back to me and said, But you're you're taking away something that I have. I have this diagnosis. It's a valid diagnosis. And of course, yes, it's a valid diagnosis, but it is also a diagnosis. It is something that you need to be working on recovering from. It's not something that you can sit in because you will not ever get beyond it unless you learn how to get yourself out of it. And you get yourself out of these things through other people, through ideas, through learning, through going onto the outside and speaking with people. And that's how I feel about that. (laughs) Um, And uh, one more point and then I'll stop. Um, This. This reassurance about existing, that was, uh, um, I actually think the, the kind of the hashtag selfie, just to bleat a bit more about that, it, that encourages that. I mean, I, when I was doing some research for this panel, I went on the uh, hashtag self-harm site, all of these uh, millions of posts, and um, one of them really struck me. There's lots of memes on there. I don't suggest that you go on there if you have any vulnerability in that respect, One of the posts on there, um, it was mirror, mirror on the wall. Can I be skinny, thin and tall and carried on in this vein? Finally, mirror, mirror on the wall. If I cut myself, will you care at all? And I do wonder if some of the mental health crisis that is facing our generation is to do with needing to find some way to exist outside of the identity that they have online.
4: Caroline. Thanks. Um. Yeah. What what Beth said first about the um, uh, communications um, between people. I think um, I, I definitely agree that that's that's something that can that we can do better. And but I think what you said about we we need to learn how to argue. I think we do learn how to argue every single day. All we do is learn how to argue, and the way that. Sort of public and political d- debate plays out is that you 're supposed to immediately react to someone that you don 't agree with by saying i don 't agree with you and so if if anything, we need a little bit less kind of argument and and a bit more kind of you know um, dialogue and, and, and in a real in a real way and I think that relates to the question about vulnerability because if you are able to experience a situation where you are talking to someone who you don't necessarily know or understand, then you'll realise that everyone is vulnerable or everyone feels vulnerable. And often you'll, you will know, will find ourselves in situations where there's people from opposing ends of the spectrum, whether it's a kind of tax justice campaigner and someone who's been accused of avoiding tax or, um, you know, a, a people on different spectrums of the Brexit debate or the generational debate. And they will always say, no, you have the power. And they are say, no, 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 you do. I'm the one that's vulnerable here. No, I'm the one that's vulnerable here. And actually, once you once you understand that everyone does, does have those feelings, I think um, it, it creates a different type of atmosphere to have a, a proper kind of dialogue in that isn't just argumentative. Um on the point about the, the protecting my well-being and the the love of self question, I think, um, I think that reflects maybe some of my opening um, comments a little bit. But the line, I suppose, or the way that it is made into a positive is if that personal well-being is seen as part of or synonymous with the well-being of others because someone on their own being great and you know sort of having personal well-being that that doesn't work actually in a society if if other people are sort of you know not not experiencing kind of well-being as well and so i think that kind of touches on the lady at the front's question about the self being the highest ideal i think a focus on personal well-being is important as long as it is not the most important thing in our in in our society and it sort of is one of many um That maybe relates to the question about the mental well-being of everyone being a government focus. And I think there's probably an opportunity there about the quality of life agenda and that sort of stuff. How you can sort of play that out and that sort of space. There's probably lots of others as well. So um, Mm -hmm. the environment, for example. Um, And finally, just one more thing. The thing about at at what point do you draw the line on social media? I think it's just understanding the difference between, the, as we've said, the public and private um, sort of realities and the fact that being able to like or share or friend someone online is not the same as in real life. Graham?
5: So many brilliant points. I don't know where to start, but the young lady you mentioned, Russo. Um, You reminded me of the great uh, drag artist and... um, philosopher RuPaul, I think famously said, if you don't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anyone else? Now, of course, that's true, and I think that might be what what you're getting at, but to somebody of my generation, it feels like we have swapped out the concept of self-respect, which we were taught was important, and swapped in self-esteem which I, I know, I'm, um, you know from, I'm a layman, I'm not a psychiatrist at all, but to me, it feels like one of the most deleterious changes that's happened in the course of my lifetime. Everything is about feeling good about yourself and nothing, no consequence must ever attach your, to yourself about, about how you've behaved. So I'm not saying get rid of an element of self-love. I'm, I'm saying let's reset the balance. Um, a little bit back to where it was when I was young, and so many brilliant points from young um, people. Gaslighting—I um, want to say—is one of my gaslight is one of my favourite ever films. And I was horrified to learn it's now become a term of abuse. If you accuse me of gaslighting somebody, I'd I, I think you were praising me, <laughs> saying that, you know I'm I'm putting some noir together that pivots on the fragile beauty of Ingrid Bergman. How can that possibly be a bad thing? To so the, the the good uh, man of the left who made the comment about Mrs. Thatcher. But I, I'm a lower middle class petty bourgeois Tory, so I don't agree with you. And I, I, I don't actually think you're you're perfectly entitled to that quote it has followed her indeed beyond her grave. I could respond with some disingenuous comment about what Blair's policies did to the homogeneity or homogeneity. I, I, I don't think it's enough. I th- I think those um, observations. Party politics is very important, uh, but it's not it's not enough, is it? Just to have a say. Yeah, yada yada. You're Labour, you're wrong. Yada yada. You're Tory, you're wrong. Of yourself is your Tory, of course you don't care about family your left wing. it doesn't get as far enough but I totally of course respect your view
1: That's very nice, can I see a show of hands please and the microphones Okay, can we bring it down to this person in yellow here and you give it to that person who's got red fingernails, yes
8: Hi, this is um, a woman over there asked about uh, psychology and why young people attach themselves to mental health issues um, I'm afraid I can't really answer that question, but I would like to explain why I don't attach myself to mental health, sh- mental health issues and why I encourage my peers not to do, this, to do the same, to not attach themselves to it. So, the uh, theory of going into my life story, um, I'm actually slightly autistic, I have a diagnosis for it, but I didn't find out until I was about 16, so I went quite a lot of my life with um, not knowing that I had mental health issues, which I think has been really beneficial for the way I developed, because it meant that I was able to attach myself and form my identity around other things, sort of actual physical things in life, and experiences rather than excuses. Not that mental health is an excuse, but you know. So for me, although I wish I could answer your question, I think to a certain extent it's that that is... A lowest common denominator of people and that, that links to shared experience. But for me, I think it's really detrimental to link yourself to mental health in terms of identity. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to see if that would mm-hmm. hope perhaps shed some light on a, that idea.
6: Thank you. Um, I'm the lady who said, Why would anybody want to have mental health issues? I would suggest is because then you get attention, and I think so much of people identifying as this or that or the other is to garner attention and/or resources, whether that's in a sort of in the you know immediate uh, environment or in, uh, resources more um, more in governmental terms, but. Um, in, in terms of what it's doing to young people, and because the uh, the gent there in the panel was so brave, and the guy over there to say what they said, I'm going to really. Th- and I've checked that she's not here, but uh, I've got a daughter who, about a year and a half ago, um, decided to identify as gay, and. At the point in time that she did that, it was very right on trend to be gay. So I said to her at that time, quite honestly, Jessica, don't give a toss what you are as long as you're still alive. Um, and she's really annoyed at me because at this point in time, I said, I don't know if you're re- responding to a trend or if this is how you're going to turn, if, if, this is, if this is who you are. I was left in, in the situation where I wasn't sure, and I'm not sure, because it's trendy at this point in time amongst that age group to be, you know, at the point it was it was gay. But it's just getting... And, and when there's too many people identifying as that, then we'll split off into another subdivision so that we're a more specialist group, if you like. and And we can also head off any kind of criticism by the very fact that before you speak to me, you've got to mind your language, because I am this. Mm-hmm. The gentleman there.
3: Right. Am I live? Okay, really quick point here. Um, when you were talking about the uh, public face being perfection and the private face being kind of whatever else is left, mm-hmm. if you're into Jungian psychotherapy, you'd instantly recognise that as, as Jung's shadow. And the thing about it is... is, is is that the mental health can only be restored when you integrate the shadow and the person becomes whole and it's maybe we should be thinking along jungian live uh, lines as it were as a a therapy a general therapy for this uh, uh, you know terrible epidemic if you like of of mental health you know so I, I threw that out because it uh, increases everyone's awareness of that school of psychotherapy which might be applicable
1: you. not know. there's somebody with the mic
12: um, yeah, um, I've got a couple of things to say. I'm going to sound very, very snowflakey, I think, here, but I don't really care. Um so starting with mental health, um, nothing actually upsets me more than when I hear people saying people say they have a mental health condition for attention because I feel that's a huge mischaracterization of young people and of mental health. People don't want to be ill and if they're brave enough to be going for help that should be respected and we should like appreciate the fact they're trying to get better. They're trying to do something about it and I'm sure if you look through the hashtag anxiety thing on Instagram you will find stories of people how they're saying hashtag anxiety to try and help others with their story and to make others feel better which brings me on to my next point about the benefit of identity politics, with the key in the name of social media being that it's social and it can't exist without other people, it can't exist without interaction. And this idea that identity politics can as well it can't, it's all about community, it's about groups of other people, it's bringing people together and identifying, um, uh, sorry, and validating identities that are traditionally forgotten. Like if you look on social media, the body positive movement, you'll find deaf models, you'll find loads of people who are traditionally forgotten. And out of the rise of identity politics, we see the rise of communities which are traditionally forgotten, like deaf communities and like um, all these other sorts of communities and by seeing other people identify in these ways it gives other people the confidence to do so as well and it brings out these communities and it brings out discourse and it brings out people feeling like they are empowered to do things they couldn't have done before so I'd like some comments on the benefits of identity politics
1: Thank you, that's useful Is there anyone else in the audience who wants to talk about the positivity of some of these movements? You can come out, it's all right. Okay, well just assume that you're there (coughs)
13: Hi, yes. I want to touch on the issue of fragility which uh, Jacob uh, brought up at the beginning as uh, one of the essential features it seems of narcissism. Um, And uh, like uh, one of the audience members also uh, perhaps re-characterized it perhaps in a slightly different way as vulnerability. And I want to try grapple with what increasingly seems to be during the course of this discussion to be a lot more entrenched than I thought it necessarily might have been. So the story Jacob tells is that there's this kind of image of the person as vulnerable, or fragile, and that idea then comes to shape the way we then see the world. But as I think the discussion has revealed, it not only exists at the level of ideas or at the level of theory. We've taken that idea and then come to internalize it. and it's come to, we've, Then it's become one of our dominant attitudes. And that attitude, again, shapes the way we then perceive ourselves, our relations with others, even perhaps the natural or objective world, it shapes that. And then it goes even further. And Jacob, I think, did touch on this when he spoke about feelings. It's so... We we, we then internalize the attitude, and the attitude becomes our feelings. So we genuinely do experience the world in an immediate way as fragile beings. Mm -hmm. So we have this kind of trifecta uh, of forces that are kind of not only uh, shaping this way we see the world, but are kind of perpetuating that way of seeing the world, our feelings, our attitudes, our ideas. Mm -hmm. And that seems to entrench this kind of worldview or this way of experiencing the world in a deeply fundamental way. Um, And whilst I agree that nothing is permanent, all is ephemeral, ultimately, and it will eventually disappear. Um, And so so I don't want to uh, suggest that we don't properly engage it, but is it it perhaps the case that we're actually stuck with this for quite some time? Um, And then how do we motivate ourselves when we are... uh, how, How do we not drift into melancholy?
5: a nice Sorry, really question.
3: No, the, no, bar really no. yeah. the bar opens soon and that'll help.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, before I'm going to bring the panel in in the reverse order that they spoke. Uh, to give you a moment to think, Graham, is there anybody else from the audience who wants to say something? You do. Okay, yeah, go,
9: yeah, yeah. Go, 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 go. I feel like maybe also in answer to your, to your question, just as another point about why um, why t- students or young people feel like they're mentally ill is through the romanticism I I find often find on social media of it just you put a black and white filter and usually you'll find like a a pretty I don't know traditionally pretty and skinny girl with like a mascara smudge and with a quote underneath and a lot often people identify with that and there's almost this yeah romanticism of it and it it really sickens me, especially with the anorexia. You you come across an anorexia account, and honestly, it's it's seen as beautiful, and it's and just with social media, it's seen as it's an accessible form of finding other people with these similar mental health issues and this kind of sick way of thinking about it. And just as just a young person on social media, that's what I find really scary when you come across these awful accounts and so that's why people attach themselves because they romanticize it I think somewhat. Right.
1: Yes.
14: Yeah I, I, I think there's always something incredibly sort of narcissistic, narcissistic about the politics of catastrophe if that everything is always going to hell in a handcart and everything is terrible and I think one of the things that's actually striking for me because it is that sort of sense of generation me 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 and I get you know sort of absolved in it as well and I find a couple of months ago because I'd sort of changed my kind of regular work hours I suddenly realized I had a couple of hours free every evening that I didn't have to work and I thought ah finally I can be a productive member of society and do something so I thought I'm going to spend some time volunteering so I went to the Samaritans and Samaritans said oh it's great but we've actually got too many volunteers at the moment (laughs) and then so I I tried to sign up a series of different homeless shelters and they went oh this is great but unfortunately we have got too many volunteers at the moment and I went around a whole different series of kind of civil society organizations that I thought didn't exist and they're all oversubscribed with people trying to do things I think, obviously, in many ways, that's a bit of a sad... Politically, that's a sad sign of the times. But I also think there's a real hunger for people to be doing things outside of themselves. And, obviously, they tend to be underrepresented in the debates about narcissism and kind of young people because they're busy outdoing things a little bit. So I think there is a kind of pressure we're having ourselves. And, in a way, it's bringing it back to where we were because there's, there's an unhealthiness with the extent to which we talk about the problems of kind of young people and the sort of snowflakes, mm-hmm. as though it hasn't been previous generations who have created a lot of these problems of liberal values or these kind of issues that we've just reflected onto them. Mm-hmm. So I think also a useful thing to ask yourself is are you immune from the culture of narcissism? <coughs> and what are you going to do to to start becoming a more productive member of society on the back of it? And that's a challenge for all of all of us, mm-hmm. regardless of how old you are.
1: Nice. Graham, your but final thought. I'm an
5: only child who was a lonely child, and I was definitely a narcissist, and I cured it by falling in love, which is I recommend that, recommend that to everyone. I wanted to come back to so many brilliant points. I wanted to come back to the, the young lady who spoke positively about um, identity politics. Um, talk about me, me, me. But I am a man who came to sexual and adult maturity when AIDS was a death sentence and the government was actively legislating against people like myself. I'm not against groups coming together to fight for a common purpose, and if I've given that impression, then it's wrong. What I am against are those groups coming together and bullying other people into submission by telling them what they're allowed to think and say on any number of contentious and and ill-defined topics. That'll do for me, I think. That's lovely. Thank
4: you. Caroline? Um, The the reason I I was trying to avoid the mental um, health questions, because I don't think I'm in a position to speak authoritatively about that but one thing did occur to me in your question which is that i guess the more that people identify with something the more they're likely to talk about it and then if they talk about it then they can identify others and have common ground and have the common purpose um with others um so i think that question relates to a lot of what we've been saying i think um uh, as graham as just said i don't I, I think the problem is is when that when that purpose that we've then built collectively becomes something which is held as power over others and i just think that there's something um something about kind of how power is played out in in society now and that we just need to understand that better so you know a couple of centuries ago it was the nation state that wielded power and there was lots of kind of theories of international relations and soft power and cultural diplomacy and all of that stuff to, to, to kind of um, uh, sort of navigate that. And now we have a different type of world where there's group power, wielding group power at the expense of other groups. And I think that's just something that we've got to relearn and figure out how to, how to deal with. Jacob.
3: Yeah, wow, so much stuff. Thanks, uh, the audience, and really great stuff. Um, uh, so, very quickly, the question about the sort of direct challenge from the young lady there about the sort of this, this hashtags and people coming together on hashtags, I think there's like this almost like precisely the, the opposite, right? Because that's about people broadcasting something on the basis of, firstly, vulnerability, and secondly, something personal. It's not solidarity based on struggle, strength and something bigger than yourself, right? So is, is always the, that, that's the point about it being like a particularly narcissistic celebration about something, because it doesn't get you out of yourself. Um, secondly, the, the and on this point about the challenge, like, are we actually narcissistic ourselves? The, firstly, yeah, the, there's loads of great stuff going on in the world, and we convened a panel about some of the narcissists. But like that's, that, that's sometimes how it works. But also, the, being... Narciss- being sort of nasty isn't necessarily the same as being narcissistic people you can be you they can be subject to a sort of narcissistic cultural condition that still want to go and volunteer um maybe may, then more maybe more profoundly is that like it, it's slightly about the way you experience these things if the essence of narcissism is fragility and a feeling of being atomized then it would almost be sort of natural to try and find a some you like dri- might try and drift into some sort of Something, but only on the basis of individual people going up. It's actually why, might even explain why volunteering is actually more popular because you just go and join the volunteering club. You don't like sort of, the, no offense to you obviously, but like you, you just go and join the volunteering club, right? There's loads of people who've done it. You don't like do the anything that might be maybe more spontaneous. You don't build something yourself, uh, that kind of volunteer. I'd say that very tentatively because I don't have any uh, answer on that. Finally, um, uh, we heard earlier, like the, from the from RuPaul, right? Um, that, <laughs> but the, the, the point I want to make is actually precisely the opposite. You, it's, it's not that like you never love other people until you love yourself. It's, you'll never love yourself until you learn to love other people or love causes that are bigger than you. That's what I'd like to end
2: on. Thank you, Beth. Um. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, I'm just trying to pick which point i'm going to go with um so i suppose um it's going back to this young lady's point over here and thank you for that because it's not easy to speak in a room full of people who are, <laughs> who, are who are kind of slamming you down um very so much, very much. well done and keep doing it you know keep keep talking about what you believe in definitely do that um I suppose the the, the issue about uh, this kind of bringing identities together, and again, going back, uh, you, no one is, well, none of us, are, we're definitely not, against p- bringing people together for a common cause to make a difference. That is not what we're against. What we're against, what I'm against, is, is this safe space culture that we live in now, where we're not, where people are coming together in these identities not in order to make change not in order to 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 bring things about but in order to sit there and you know this takes us this takes us back to victorian times you know women in the parlor room men in the smoking room we have that dynamic now with safe spaces where we're not we're not changing things we're not communicating with each other to to make a difference and i think that is that really is the kind of essence of the danger with identity politics um now there's also um i want to come back to this this idea about attention seeking and young people now i again thank you for that point i think i think people aren't talking about attention seeking enough but i also think that that's because it's become such a negative term um and it, as such, it's, it's kind of obsolete. It's a bit like calling a young person a snowflake. That type of discussion, it closes it down. It makes it, it switches people off from it. Um, nevertheless, you're very free to say it. Um, but I think we are we are so quick now, because you did bring out a very valid point there. We are so quick now to slam a label on young people. And I, I, thank you again to you over here, because I think that the slamming a label onto a young person, they never then get over that label. That label is always there for them. And some of these labels are useful. You know, I've worked with kids for a long time. Some of the kids that I've worked with have had diagnoses, and those have been useful diagnoses to getting them the support that they need, or in this situation, actually, having to have their parents fight for that support endlessly, it seems. But... um, these labels then stay with some of these children for life, and I think we really need to think about what we're doing to young people when we put a label on them, and and how we then treat that label. And I think when it comes to sexuality, that that can that can be a big problem. I think because young people we know that they are, they're very kind of, their identities are constantly changing, especially when they're going through puberty, especially when they are... They, you know, everything is upside down during that time. If we then start imposing labels on them, we don't give them that freedom to actually find out what label they do belong to and what label they can then own themselves. And that's my feeling on that. Deep breath. (laughs) Well, that
1: was reassuringly complicated. Thank you very much.